This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the library. We'll go ahead and get started. Um, it's great to see everyone here today. Uh, one of the cool things about my job is uh, I get to meet a lot of different people around campus, and you never know the unique, um, exciting people that have uh, interesting backgrounds that are lurking around this place, and I think James Builder is definitely one of those people. Um, he is a graduate of Moraine Valley, and uh, he went on to Lewis to finish his uh, bachelor's in journalism. He holds the MS in Industrial Relations from Loyola, uh, and from 1993 to 2001, he was the mayor of Worth, so, you know, who knew? How cool. Um, he spent 27 years in the pharmaceutical industry, and he teaches business here at Moraine. So, again, those kind of people that are around our hallways, um, that are in our classrooms, that uh, we should be proud and happy to know. So uh, he's here today to talk about his book, uh, the, A Foot Soldier for Patton, which is about World War II. So definitely a man who brings a diverse background and interesting perspectives. So with that, I welcome uh, Mr. Builder to the microphone. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, needless to say, I'm very glad to be here today. And uh, certainly history buffs, fellow students, um, all from Moraine, uh, certainly want to welcome you. also wanted to take an opportunity to introduce one other member of the faculty here at Moraine who assisted on this particular project, who is my sister, Marianne Grizzolano, who some of you may know uh, teaches uh, various courses in, um, in literature and composition. And she is right here. Marianne, would you be good enough to stand up for just a moment? So Marianne was kind enough. Uh, well, a round of applause if you'd be so kind. Marianne was good enough to, um, to d complete most of the editing on the first draft that I had completed. And that helped quite a bit because um, whenever you're writing something, it, um, uh, it feels as if you want to get each and every last detail down. And at some point, things have to start to be condensed. So it's nice to have someone who's a little bit removed, a little bit more objective, to say, here's how we can kind of shrink some of those things. Um, in terms of my father and the adventures that he experienced as a, as a soldier in the Second World War, uh, this was something from the time that I had been very young and had listened to his stories. I used to think, this is the kind of material that should be put down in a book. And as time went by and I looked at um, uh, whether it was factual material such as Citizen Soldier by Stephen Ambrose, who also wrote Band of Brothers, or whether it was fictional material such as Saving Private Ryan, uh, you could see more and more the strong interest in capturing the first-hand accounts of veterans from the Second World War. And the fact that my father had survived uh, not only the entire campaign across France, but had been inducted prior to America's entry in World War II and had spent all that time in service, I thought, this is kind of a unique set of circumstances that we should capture. So I had started in 1988 to record some of the experiences he had had. And then in the early 1990s, as was mentioned, I got involved in local politics, and that really tends to take a lot of your time. So for about a decade, the entire project was placed on hold. But after I left public office in 2001, which was my part-time slash full-time job, I was able to devote a lot more time on the weekends and in the evenings to completing this work. So I did the appropriate research, made sure that my father filled in the rest of the details, and then had a manuscript completed um, by about December of 2006. Then it becomes a matter of submitting it to various publishers to see who might be interested. Casemate Publishing out of Pennsylvania and the United Kingdom said that, well, we like veterans' accounts, especially these first-hand accounts, so we would like to publish this material. And on November the 30th of 2008, the book became available for sale through Amazon and at Borders and Barnes and places like that. So without any further ado, I would like to talk a little bit about the book, and then I'll be happy at that time to answer any questions. I did just want to say one thing. Um, I'm very, very pleased at uh, the benefit not only of teaching here at Moraine as adjunct faculty for the last seven years, but also to be a graduate of the college. I think it's an excellent school. I felt it prepared me very well for Lewis University and uh, continued to serve me as I went on to do graduate work and then complete this book. So uh, my gratitude in many ways to Moraine Valley. My father and uh, 
interesting guy who's still alive at 89 and fully alert mentally, although on the physical side he's certainly starting to slow down, um, was inducted in April of 1941. And this was part of a peacetime draft to make the United States prepared for the Second World War in the event that we became a belligerent in that particular conflict. Um, what's interesting is at that time the war in Europe and in Asia had been going on for about 18 months and he was supposed to serve for 12 months and he thought well this can't be too bad right what's a one-year hitch in the peacetime army and he was uh, stationed at Fort Custer in Battle Creek Michigan which is in the southwest corner of Michigan and was assigned to the 5th Infantry Division which is why if you've noticed on the book there's a red diamond that's their patch that division was deactivated in 1992 but it, it has a very um, historical lineage including involvement in both world wars so he, um, he was serving at Fort Custer. The peacetime army was a lot more lenient and laid back than things would be in wartime. So if my father was unable to obtain a weekend pass to go back and see my mother, he'd simply hitch a ride right out of the base and drive down and get a ride on the bus or from a, uh, somebody with a car down to Chicago, and he'd spend uh, the weekend visiting his parents and my mom, and then he'd return after being AWOL for the weekend and then have to serve KP duty or he'd have to guard prisoners. Um, as I said, in, in peacetime, AWOL offenses were a lot less serious than they would be once war was declared. Um, winding down in 1941, he thought, well, I've got about four months left in the Army, and I'm going to enjoy civilian life again. And then, of course, as you all know, the attack on Pearl Harbor occurred on December 7th. So he was called into an auditorium um, with the other members of the 5th Division, probably in, in company-sized groups, and was informed that all of you will be in the war for the duration. So we have no idea how long this will last, but however long it does last, you'll be here for it. Don't worry, you won't miss out. Um, four days later, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States. So now the United States was facing a two-front war with involvement um, across the globe. Initially, the 5th Infantry Division was sent to Iceland. Iceland, of course, as you know, is located not too far off the Canadian coast. It has tremendous, tremendous strategic value. Uh, the Germans wanted to utilize that as a position to refuel submarines and attack shipping along the Canadian and American coasts. The Icelandic people in culture and language were a lot closer to the Germans than they were to the Americans or the Canadians. So they regarded the U.S. as occupiers. And when my father and others would want to go into cities like Reykjavik, um, they would have to travel in groups of a dozen or more. They spent 18 months there. And, of course, my father had some interesting experiences. Their only fresh water where they were stationed at Camp Arnaholt came from a little well. And it was always guarded with two men round the clock. And when my father's time came to guard that area, he decided that he and a soldier by the name of Eugene Brinkman would bring some ammunition along for target practice. Well, they were shooting at some tin cans and some bottles, and they thought this was quite enjoyable, and they were bringing their target scores up. And they had the unfortunate event of noticing that different colored flares were being fired. And they kind of wondered who was firing off flares. Well, they soon found out when a, uh, an assault force showed up in blackface with Tommy guns and armored vehicles saying, where are the Germans? We thought an airborne assault has taken place and you folks are the first people holding this off. So when they discovered that this was recreational target practice, um, my father and Mr. Brinkman were not placed under arrest, fortunately, but were brought back um, to their, um, uh, to their barracks and were told to report in full dress uniform the next day. They were informed that they were going to face a general court martial for making General Bonesteel think that the island was under invasion and his evacuation was imminent. Uh, fortunately, on a technicality, they were both let go. Uh, what had occurred is they had not been read the orders of the day. They had simply been told to go up there and guard the well. If they had been read the orders of the day, it would have told them, do not discharge firearms unless it's necessary. Um, you're not allowed to have recreational target practice in a combat zone. So because of this technicality, my father and Eugene Brinkman were then released. Um, the amazing thing is this is the type of luck that would follow my father all his time um, through military service by both avoiding court-martial and avoiding serious injury. Um, from there, after 18 months in Iceland, they were sent in August of 1943 to Britain. And they were stationed just outside of London. 
And on their weekend passes, they would go into either London or they would go into Andover, which is a nice little town southwest of London. While there, my father was trained in com- being a, becoming a combat lifeguard. He was very athletic, a good swimmer. Um, being a combat lifeguard, in addition to being an infantryman, is an interesting thing to do because in order to qualify, uh, they simulate the type of conditions you can expect to find in combat. So naturally, at St. George Baths, where the training took place, Right? We know that there's going to be fire from burning ships and things of that nature. So the officers and the major sergeant, sergeant majors were good enough to coat the water with oil and then ignite it. And then my father and those who were completing the course jumped from a height of 20 feet with full pack at 60 pounds, helmet and rifle and boots, into this flaming muck. So he jumped in, um, feet first sank to the bottom, dropped his pack, his helmet, and his rifle, swam 75 yards underwater, and then surfaced on the other side, and then had qualified to become a combat lifeguard. So in other words, when assault boats would overturn in the water during the river crossings in France and Germany, he was one of those who would dive in and have to bring people back to the surface. Uh, If you see that opening scene in Saving Private Ryan where they're assaulting the beach and they have to jump over the side of the landing craft, Many of them are sinking to the bottom and drowning because they can't get their equipment off. So he would have to unhook their packs and make sure their helmets were off and then push them back up to the surface. And there they enjoyed the relative safety of enemy machine gun and mortar fire now that they were back at the top of the river. Um, He also volunteered to do something for the Red Cross. The Red Cross were not allowed to deliver messages. They're not part of the military to men on the front line. So my father, once he was in Europe or in France, would travel by jeep from company to company to deliver Red Cross messages. And then he would temporarily be assigned to that company. So he had an opportunity to serve in combat with all 12 of the companies that were in the um, 2nd Regiment. Um, They didn't last long in England. They were only there nine weeks. There was a a racial fight in Andover. Uh, Most of the members of the 5th Division were from the South, and in those days, as you remember uh, from your history books, uh, there was a great deal of racial prejudice and discrimination. So a racial fight broke out at Andover, and the British asked that the 5th Division be removed from England. So they were immediately sent to Warren Point, which is just on the border in Northern Ireland with the South. There's a... There's a small waterway that separates the north from the south there. So while there, their training continued. And, of course, my father, never wanting to be inactive, decided that they needed some whiskey that had not been diluted in the north. So my father was good enough to make runs into the south in his uniform, uh, into neutral northern or southern Ireland, um, to pick up Irish whiskey to bring back to the north. And um, when he was down there many times, the Bobbies would stop him and say, What are you doing down here, Yank? And he'd say, I'm just buying some of your good Irish whiskey. And they'd say, Well, be off with you then. So he'd take the whiskey back up north and um, uh, see that it got distributed there. Uh, he also decided that he would extend one of his, um, his leaves by an additional two days. So that almost got him transferred into the glider troops. The Army decided they would repay his consideration with a transfer into the glider troops, a highly dangerous um, high mortality um, division of the service. He was fortunate in that he had a small bone protruding in his right ankle from playing basketball, so he didn't qualify, and they had to send him back to the 5th Infantry Division. So once again, his luck stepped in and spared him from uh, what would have been almost certain death. Um, when they got to France, and if you'll excuse me for just one moment, I'm going to bring this map over so it might be a little bit easier. When they got to France, um, General George Patton had not yet arrived. So what had occurred, as you may remember, at the initial D-Day landing, so for the United States, that was at Normandy and Utah beaches. and um, I'm sorry, Omaha and Utah beaches in Normandy. The 5th Division was held in Northern Ireland. It was the, um, the 1st and the um, 29th Infantry Divisions, which uh, went ashore that day, along with the 4th Infantry Division at Utah Beach. About a month later, on July the 10th, the 5th Division arrived, but the fighting was still taking place quite close to the shore. It was only about 10 to 12 miles inland. And the reason for that is that in France, what had been done over the last thousand years is rather than put up fencing, the farmers would establish their boundaries and contain their farm animals with hedges. And we're all accustomed to our small hedges in front of our house, which we can quickly 
clean up with a hedge trimmer. Um, but over a thousand years, those hedges grew to be 15 feet in height and as much as 18 inches in thickness. So even the tanks could not plow through those hedges. The Germans, of course, were good enough to leave landmines planted amongst the spaces in the hedges and to ring the outsides with barbed wire. So as Americans tried to move through that, their casualty rates were very high. This was almost World War I-type fighting. Um, men were fighting and dying for literally inches and feet of ground in order to try and advance um, a small distance. Something had to be done to break the stalemate. So what was ordered was Operation Cobra. And all of the artillery and the aerial bombardment was concentrated in an area just below St. Mariglise. So once that occurred, they basically did what we would today think of as a tactical nuclear weapon. They carpet bombed an area and three miles wide and basically eliminated any people and material that were within that particular area. Once they had an opening in the German lines, this was the time on August 1st to bring in General Patton. And of course, Patton's strategy was what we all know from football, an end run. Once you can break through the opposition's line of defense, you simply move around to the side, sweep past them, and of course in football you'd simply score a touchdown. Here what Patton did once he broke out was he had moved far enough south and then decided to move east. Um, we all know about Patton's amazing victories. Within approximately five weeks' time, he had cleared France of the German army, at least northern France. Um, they moved just south of Paris and then reached Verdun and the famous city of Metz. Now, if you've read about Patton or you've seen the movie Patton, you know that we saw this the situation in August where Patton is able to sweep France clean in just a month's time. And then these movies always jump ahead to December and the Battle of the Bulge and how Patton broke through to Bastogne and was able to assist the 101st Airborne Division there. But what happened in September and October and November? We know Patton didn't go on vacation, right? Patton was always a move, move, move kind of guy. Well, the American Army which had advanced very rapidly across France, had basically run out of gasoline. So what happened was they were stalled, Patton's Third Army was stalled just outside of Metz in the French province of Lorraine, which would be roughly the size of Cook County. Lorraine was considered the jumping off point into Germany, and Metz was considered the key city in Lorraine. So once you took that, you were free to invade Germany. The Germans knew this as well. So during this downtime when the United States was low on gasoline, they refortified 43 forts that encircled the city of Metz. Now, no one had taken Metz by storm since 451 A.D. Patton decided it was his time and place in history to do this. Now, Patton had been advised by his commanding officers, everyone from Bradley and Eisenhower up to George Marshall, the chief of staff, to bypass Metz and encircle it and to starve the Germans out. But that wasn't Patton's way. Patton decided, no, we have to take it by force. So Patton decided he would send his infantry in against forts. Once again, World War I-style fighting. Now, as you can see from this map, these forts are all relatively close. They had interconnecting railways about the size of the trains that you see in the amusement park that the children ride, and they could transfer troops and material from one fort to the next, all underground. They had an entire series of trenches above ground that connected these. The concrete in the, in the thinnest places was seven feet thick. So what these forts could do if American infantry got close enough to them, they could call down artillery fire from another fort. The artillery wouldn't damage the fort in any way whatsoever, but it would eliminate any infantry that was anywhere near the fort. And the most notorious of these forts was Fort Treant. Now, initially, the second regiment was sent, which was my father's regiment, was sent toward Verneville. This was a probe. Verneville had no real strategic importance, but Verneville was going to see just how powerful the artillery of these forts was. Well, when my father was part of the assault there at the start of September, he said that from the reception they had received, you would have thought they had just invaded hell. Artillery, mortars, machine guns, sniper fire, everything you could imagine, cut them to pieces. But they succeeded in taking Verneville. The reason this was so impressive, 
Military strategy says that when you attack a, a fixed position, you should have a three-to-one superiority in numbers against the defender. In this particular case, it was the defending Germans who had a three-to-one superiority. So despite the enormous casualties, Verneville was taken. The 11th Regiment was sent down here to cross the Moselle and to probe the forts here, especially Fort Dreant, which was the key to this entire area. Um, basically, the 11th Regiment was used up. The casualties ran 90%. Usually acceptable military casualties are somewhere in the vicinity of approximately 10%. 90% of these men were being killed or wounded. My father was pulled down the 2nd Regiment to assault Fort Treant in October after the 11th Regiment had spent a month attempting to do this. Their success was no better. Um, they had reached the interiors of Fort Treant, but the underground passages were all cement and the corners were rounded. So the Germans didn't even have to see who they were shooting at. They could simply fire their weapons. The bullets would round along the cement corners and come out at the other side at the Americans. So my father said as he and others would attempt to bring the engineers forward, they simply couldn't um, withstand the withering fire that the Germans would put up. They'd have to withdraw. Finally, in November, Patton did what he had been advised to do by General Bradley and General Eisenhower and General Marshall. And by the way, Marshall had, the casualty rates were so high, George Marshall came from Washington, D.C. to France, to Metz, to talk to Patton to see exactly what was going on. The infantry assaults were ordered to be halted. So Metz was finally encircled and surrounded and starved out. And the last of the forts, uh, Fort Plapaville, surrendered on December 11th. Fort Treant fell on the 8th. Now, my dad spoke fluent German. His parents had been born and raised in Germany and had come here prior to the First World War. So my father was born in Chicago but could speak fluent German. When Fort Treant surrendered, Major William Gothel, who was going to take the surrender, said he needed an interpreter. And Army intelligence didn't have anyone immediately available, so they knew my father could speak fluent German. So my father was called to act as translator for the surrender of Fort Treant. And it's kind of interesting because when Major Gothel walked in, and saw the commanding officer, a lieutenant colonel, who was commanding Fort um, Driant, the officer was sitting quite smugly. And Major Gothel said to my father, Builder, tell that crowdhead son of a bitch to stand up when I walk into a room. He's surrendering. I'm not. I'll stand. He sits. So my father relayed the message. The colonel immediately snapped to his feet, offered his hand, which Major Gothel refused, and said that if it had not been for the fact that they ran out of medical supplies, they would not have surrendered. They would have continued to hold out. Uh, one would have thought after this particular period of time, all of this combat, first of all, we had Normandy, then the sweep across France, then all of these months at Metz, that there might have been a little bit of a breather. So Patton now reached close to the German border near Sarlantern. And then what happened, of course, as you all may remember, December was good enough to issue in one of the coldest winters in the last century in Europe, and, of course, the Battle of the Bulge took place. This was the last gasp, last desperate attempt of the Germans to win the war. The reason it's called the Battle of the Bulge is that the Allied armies were advancing in a nice, straight, solid line on the map. But when the Germans broke through their lines into Belgium and northern Luxembourg, if you looked at a map, there was a bulge in it where the Germans had advanced. So that's the name of the battle. And, of course, those of us who are 50 or older, we always fight the Battle of the Bulge. That never stops. But this particular Battle of the Bulge, the Germans had hoped to capture Antwerp and repeat the success they enjoyed in 1940 when they had conquered France in six weeks' time. They thought they could cut the Allies off and they would be able to um, eliminate their armies. Of course, as we know, the 101st Airborne held out at Bastogne, and the other armies, the 1st and 3rd Armies, immediately started to come to their rescue. My father and Patton were in the southern half of Luxembourg, near Dykirk, and they crossed the Sur River into Dykirk. There was a major battle there, and then pushed the Germans out through the southern flank, and by February of 1945, they had entered Germany itself at Bitburg. Um, Bitburg was basically reduced to ruins. They then moved to Trier. From there, they crossed at, at Oppenheim. They crossed the Rhine River, which was really considered Germany's last stronghold. Uh, fought a significant battle at Frankfurt. Now, you may recall, again, from your history books that 
Berlin basically had been promised to the Russian army. Uh, there was the thought that Patton couldn't necessarily be trusted to obey orders. He had this tendency to kind of misinterpret what he had been told and to do what he felt was best. Um, and the concern was that Patton would continue to drive northeast onto Berlin and to take the city itself. So in order to ensure that that didn't occur, uh, most of his army, including my, my father's own 5th Division, was diverted up to the Ruhr Pocket. And here, the 1st and 9th American armies had trapped um, several German armies, and this is, of course, the industrial heartland of Germany. And for about two weeks, they cleaned out isolated pockets here, probably unnecessarily so, because like at Metz, this group of army, um, this group of Germans, rather, was surrounded. So their ability to counterattack and to um, uh, effectively cause any real problem was basically neutralized. But this did burn up time in Patton's armies. And uh, during that period of time, the Russians, of course, did take Berlin. My father then moved southeast past the city of um, uh, Weimar, which is where Buchenwald concentration camp is located. And that was where it had already been liberated, and that was his first experience seeing um, a German concentration camp. And the outrage was so tremendous that not only were the Germans forced to dig the graves to properly bury the dead, but if they didn't have the appropriate tools to dig with, they were ordered to use their hands. And they dug the graves necessary to um, bury Holocaust victims. As he always said, he can assure you, despite claims to the opposite, the Holocaust was very much real and every bit as bad as you've been told. Then they moved into Bavaria for the last few days of the war. They learned of Hitler's death. They were hopeful things would finally wind down. Uh, the German 7th Army was in Czechoslovakia, and they decided that they wanted to fight. So on the 4th of May... Patton crossed over into Czechoslovakia with half a million men. That's the largest invasion force the United States has ever assembled. Um, three days later, it was announced that Germany was going to be surrendering. There was an armistice. Um, one of the um, fellows, uh, an individual by the name of McGuire, had served with my father from Normandy all the way across this entire campaign and was killed on the very last day on May the 7th by one of his own men who was foolishly dragging a gun across the ground as they were advancing up a hill. The gun discharged and, and killed uh, Private McGuire by putting a, uh, uh, a round through his, um, his stomach. Um, the war over, my father was assigned occupation duty in Innisbrook. Um, once again, the mischievous little boy in him came out. Uh, one of the last things that he had been ordered to do was to pick up a liquor requisition. So as he received the requisition, he took the top form, inserted it in the typewriter, and after every numeral, he put down a zero. One became ten, two became twenty, three became thirty. When they got to um, the brewery in Innisbrook, the brewmeister took a look at this and said, I think I'm going to have to have this confirmed. Um, my father obviously couldn't let that happen, so we started to bawl him out in German and said, we don't have time for this. You've got to fill this order. So down came the liquor on the chutes. Now, they were supposed to leave in a three-quarter ton truck. They arrived in a two-and-a-half ton truck, and it was full almost to the brim. They took it back, and the officers could not understand how the dog faces could be so drunk when they had such a limited liquor ration. So for about a month's time, my father was probably the most popular dog face in all of Innsbruck. Um, he returned in August of 1945 on the 9th, was discharged, and two days later, uh, my mother, who had waited the three and a half years for him while he had been overseas, they were married at St. Felicitas Church in Chicago. Um, my dad went on to be awarded in 2006 the French Legion of Honor, which is France's version of our Medal of Honor. It's their highest military decoration. There are fewer than 100 Americans from World War II who have received that medal, and my father is now one of them. Um, he received two Bronze Stars, two Bronze Stars medals, and the um, Luxembourg Croix de Guerre for his actions in Luxembourg during the Battle of the Bulge. So, infantryman, combat lifeguard, Red Cross messenger, and translator. Uh, a rather interesting experience, to say the least. Uh, certainly, you can, I think you can all understand why I felt this was something that had to be put down. Uh, as these folks are beginning to pass on, all of those first-hand accounts and that rich history goes with them, sad to say. So hopefully this will be one aspect of having that remembered. Also, the 5th Infantry Division. Um, the Red Diamonds had never had anything written about them in the past, and that's really hard to imagine because they were at the very crux of Patton's drive across France and into Germany. So hopefully now the 5th Division won't be quite so easy to forget. 
And I'd like to ask you, are there any are there any questions about the campaign? Yes. Uh, move aside from the campaign. Go back to your research. Sure. Um, have you, uh, during the research, contacted any of your dad's comrades? I know they're in their 80s and so forth. Sure. Um, There's probably, what, uh, 700 men in the, uh, in, the, in the battalion? Yeah, about 650, correct. Close to 700. Um, some of those gentlemen I had spoken to in the 80s, I did not, I hadn't contacted them after 2001 when I picked up work again. By that time, they were in their 80s, and many of them were not really able to to add all that much. Um, my father had recounted those stories numerous times, so I included them in there. Um, in some cases, again, from the early or from the late 1980s, I had contacted them, but it was about. 15 or 16 years since I had spoken to them by the time I put it down. Okay. Uh, uh, if for some reason your dad had mentioned half or only a third of what he mentioned to you, would you have relied upon the men that, that you know, answered your inquiries, his comrades? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, uh, they would have added more to it. But as I stated in the introduction, this is really a memoir. Um, even even the, the information, for instance, all of the statistics I use came from the U.S. Army. So, you know, depending upon who you look at, some authors would list the combat time, the 10 months that the 5th Division spent, as 270 days. The Army listed as 300 days. Um, you know, whether or not those people who died on the 7th were listed among the official casualties or you know, that type of thing. So I, I simply relied on what the Army supplied, the 5th Division, the 2nd Regiment. Um, I did contact the historians from those associations. Some of the photographs utilized in the book come from the 5th Division. Some come from a military library um, and museum in Luxembourg. Yes, I did contact the National Archives. As a matter of fact, I was able to obtain some of the award records. Um, general yes, general orders, that's correct. My, own, my father's, and then, of course, um, during the final assault in Czechoslovakia, there were a number of 5th Division men who were awarded the Bronze Star Medal when they crossed the, um, the river that divides Czechoslovakia from Germany, which is the Temple of Latava. And uh, that was a very dangerous crossing. Uh, I know all of you are probably familiar. You may have even seen movies like The Bridge at Ramagin. It certainly was nowhere near that kind of a scale, but you get an idea of what an assault crossing is like against a bridge. Most of the time they had to use boats because the bridges were blown. Anything else? The campaign, writing a book. It's, um, it's, I believe that if you're passionate about what your particular topic is, you can do it. Um, it's just a question of making the time to do it. I don't think that you have to be a literary genius. I certainly have proven that that's the case. Um, it is nice to have the assistance of people who are very gifted with, with um, aspects of composition and literature, um, even in the final draft. You know, there's a, as you will notice, there's always, and I've, uh, in, in virtually every book that's published, there are still two or three typos that slip through, um, no matter how good the editing is. So uh, those types of things will occur. History, especially military history, has been a passion. And um, I tried to write this in such a way that people who didn't serve, like such as myself, who didn't serve in the military could still read this and, and understand it. So by having the opportunity to talk to a number of the people who had served in combat with the 5th Division. Some, of course, too, afterwards. I spoke to some of those in the 5th Division who had served in Vietnam. And, of course, as they said, combat is basically combat. The weapons change somewhat, but there's a great deal of marching, very little sleep, tremendous boredom, um, limited periods of intense fear. It really doesn't change from war to war. I remember my father read um, Sam Watkins' book, Company H, and he was from Tennessee and had seen the entire Civil War as a rifleman from the Southern perspective. And I was very impressed with this book, and after my father read it, he said to me, you know, other than the fact that we had automatic weapons and they used muskets, things hadn't changed that much. You could fall asleep marching. Uh, that's how tired you were. Um, helmets. An interesting thing about the so-called steel pot of World War II, if you took the lining out of it, it was utilized for everything. You could bail out a foxhole. You could cook powdered eggs in it. 
Um, you can also use it, if necessary, as a toilet, which became necessary when people were in foxholes during the Battle of the Bulge and at Metz. So um, tremendous uses there. Um, K rations, living out of food that comes in a box uh, roughly the size, a little smaller than a cereal box. And uh, my father said one of the things I used to like to do, because obviously you didn't have the luxury of simply getting up and going to the restroom, was to bind themselves up as much as they could. So the hardtack, which she said was pretty much like a dog biscuit, uh, would be something that you could melt some cheese on and sprinkle some powdered bouillon on, and then that would do a great deal to not only fill you up, but to bind you up. Um, and then you have to remember to put the lining of the helmet and the helmet back together. My father said one time he had left a foxhole at Metz, and someone said, Mike, what happened? Did somebody shoot that helmet off your head or what? And he said he felt up there and he was wearing the lining but not the helmet, so he had to run back to get his helmet, uh, much to his chagrin with the laughter uh, on both sides. Uh, Patton, he said, was um, an interesting character. He said that the feeling at the time among most of the GIs is that they would just as soon have shot George Patton as the Germans. Uh, there was one incident at Metz, uh, one of two that my father was uh, present for. They were about to take a hill in September, and this was near Verneville. And uh, the fog was quite heavy when they had arrived at 0600. So at 6 a.m. it was still very thick. And the officers thought, well, we'll give it an hour to burn off before we send these troops up because that way they can see what they're fighting. Now, Patton, in command of an army, so he's going to be in charge of approximately 45,000 men, one would think he'd have more things to worry about than a company, a group of about 150 men. But sure enough, Patton showed up on the spot and wanted to know why that hill had not been taken. So the officers explained, well, General, we're waiting for the fog to burn off. And Patton's comment, and this was in front of all the troops, is, I will get you all the replacements you need. Move forward and take that hill. So needless to say, this doesn't inspire a great deal of confidence when your commanding general says in front of you, I really don't care how many of you get killed. I need that hill taken by 0700 or whatever particular time it may have been. So he said that most of the time their feelings were not all that warm toward Patton. There's a line in the movie when Patton removes an officer from command in Sicily. And in that particular line, one officer says to the next don't feel bad. There's 50,000 men on this island that would like to shoot that son of a bitch. And when my father saw the movie, he said, bingo. He said, boy, we all felt that way. Um, but he said later um, he did have some degree of pride in saying I was in Patton's Third Army when people would ask him what he had done during the Second World War. Um, we were just amazed that all of the experiences he had, and he came, the worst he had ever received was, uh, was a bloody nose. He had been knocked in the air by a, the concussion from a German hand grenade. So that was the worst wound that he had received. Um, only 10% of the riflemen in the 5th Division stood up at the, um, at the end of the war uh, in May of 1945. The rest had either been killed, wounded, or captured. So they arrived in France with a little over 14,000 men. 2,700 were killed in action, 9,000 were wounded, 1,000 are missing, and 100 were captured. So uh, that didn't leave all that many left when everything was said and done. And that, when you, when you look at the back of the book and the KIAs are listed there, that's just one single solitary regiment. That's, you can imagine when you multiply that, you have the 5th Infantry Division and the 90th and the 95th and all of these other units that fought with Patton and that endured tremendous numbers of, uh, of dead and wounded. So um, I, I can certainly see why they're called the greatest generation. They've certainly earned that. Yes, of course. Uh, I, too, am uh, researching my dad's World War II. Uh, he was with the Ninth Army, uh, a little north of where your dad is. Sure. Uh, I want to thank you for writing this book because it has inspired me to continue my research. It's been about seven, eight years. Is your father still living? No, he passed away oh, in I'm sorry. Oh, sure. On the phone, they would call me and tell me about some of the interesting uh, adventures, you know, and some of the terrible things that went on. Um, and I want to thank you for, for writing the book. It's, it's inspiring me because I want to do the same thing. I'm glad, and that's. I hope it does do that, yes.
Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to have done it. Um, if you're interested in your own father or grandfather, what they may have done in the war, there's a, there's a very good book that's been written entitled Finding Your Father's War. And that will enable you to get... Uh, there's the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Unfortunately, in 1973, they had a fire, so about 90% of their original records are destroyed. But usually they still have a copy, which they've obtained from the State Department of Veteran Affairs in the 50 states, and also from what were then territories, of at least the discharge form. So they usually can verify whether or not somebody was a veteran and indeed where they may have served. So Finding Your Father's War is an excellent book. Um, there's the National Archives, which will enable you to obtain, as was previously um, just mentioned, a number of general orders and other things, um, unit histories, Oftentimes, unit histories, especially regimental histories, will include at the back of the book people who were actually members. For instance, the second regiment published their own history at the conclusion about two years after the war had ended, and it listed the names and what had been the addresses at the time that these people were, were inducted uh, in the back. So you were able to, to go through and, um, and see if you could contact some of those people. So um, it, I think it's very exciting. Uh, the other thing that you can do is once you've accumulated this information, the National Personnel Records Center, you can write to them again in St. Louis, they'll supply a veteran or their next of kin with all of their World War II or their service medals one time for free. And most of the time, if you were to buy these medals individually in the store, they're about $35 a piece. So oftentimes um, people will have earned the Bronze Star Medal, the Good Conduct Medal, um, Battle Stars, right, which will go on to their campaign medal, such as the European Campaign Medal or the Asian Campaign Medal, um, World War II Victory Medal, the Occupation Medal. Then there may be foreign awards. If, you, if your uh, relatives served in the uh, Pacific, um, the Philippine Islands, the, the government of the Philippines offer things like the Philippine Liberation Medal. Um, the French offer the uh, what's called the Thank You America Certificate along with the Medal of Liberated France. So the areas or the countries that your relatives may have served in may also offer decorations and certificates, which was a lot of fun to collect. Um, Luxembourg, France, all of these areas sent my father a, a large number of things. There's, there was a, a campaign medal for Metz. Uh, there are two for Normandy. Uh, as I mentioned, the Medal of Liberated France. So as... Uh, Many units were awarded the French Croix de Guerre, or uh, Cross of War. So, again, as you research this, you can put this history up and on display. Uh, shadow boxes can either be made professionally through companies like Medals of America, or you can even do it yourself. If you just obtain the box and some Velcro, um, uh, I had my dad's um, Legion of Honor professionally mounted. Uh, but the other shadow boxes I made, and I have basically one for each country. So it's, uh, it's nice, uh, as my sister can tell you when, you, when you come into the family room, uh, as she jokes, she said, that's our father's wall, because everything is up there listing his service. So uh, I also have one for my grandfather. He was in the First World War. Um, any other questions or comments? Yes? Uh, did, uh, did your father get discharged the paper right after, or did he stay after the war ended? Um, well, he, he served occupation duty um, for a month in Germany in June and then for during July for a month in um, Austria. And then he was um, points. They had to obtain points. If you earned 85 points or more, you were eligible for discharge. So you got a point for every month you were in the service and a point, an additional point for every month overseas. You got five months for every major battle or campaign, and then five months for every valor decoration, such as a bronze star or a silver star. So at the time that he was discharged, he had 119 points, so well over the 85 necessary. He had no desire to remain in the Army. As a matter of fact, um, he, was, he was called in in July and told that he was going to be listed as essential because of the fact that he spoke German, and they wanted him to stay in afterwards as an interpreter. And... Um, this was the actual, I don't remember the first name, but the captain's name was Smith. It's not a, just a, a literary um, uh, liberality that I took. The name it was actually Smith. And Captain Smith, his company commander, called him in, and there was a G2 intelligence officer uh, present, a lieutenant. And they said, we're going to classify you as essential and keep you in. 
So my father said, there's nothing in my service record that shows that I can speak German. And as far as I'm concerned, I picked it up while I was over here, and I can forget it just as quickly. <laughs> so the G2 man immediately piped in and said, we'll make you a warrant officer in six months' time. And my father, who was a PFC, pointed to his shoulders and said, Lieutenant, I wouldn't care if you put eagles up there. I'm supposed to be discharged in a few weeks, and I want to take that discharge. So he was on a uh, boat out of uh, Belgium uh, and back home, as I said, uh, in, uh, in August. And very, very happy to take that discharge. And, you know, it's interesting. The fighting didn't necessarily end in Europe. They actually landed at Newport News, Virginia, and they went to Camp Patrick Henry. And um, most of these fellows, by this time my father had accepted he didn't want any promotions because he didn't want to have to be, he said it was difficult to keep yourself alive, nevertheless to have to worry about keeping others alive. So he decided that command was a responsibility he'd leave to others. But now with the war over, he accepted a promotion. He was a corporal, so now he's a non-commissioned officer. He and about 450 others were brought into an auditorium at Camp Patrick Henry. Most of these fellows had seen a great deal of combat and were very interested in becoming civilians. They could barely tolerate military discipline. Um, they were told, we expect you guys might be troublemakers, so we're going to keep an eye on you. Well, that afternoon when they were marched over to the mess hall, there were a number of German POWs who were there who had been there for some time. And they were very well groomed and very well fed and looked very well rested. And uh, my father and the others weren't very happy about this. So there were a lot of comments flying, such as dirty krauts and dirty Nazis and things like this. And finally, one of the German soldiers told one of the Americans what he could do with himself. So that brought about an immediate fist fight. And the Germans were smart enough not to throw punches back. They simply held their arms up to block the blows. But the MPs came in and broke the fight up pretty quickly. So they had arrived on August, the morning of August the 4th, and they were on their way out of the fort by the afternoon of August the 4th. So the Army was happy to send them on their merry way. My father went back to Fort Sheridan, where he had first arrived in April of 1941 and was uh, processed for discharge there. Um, he said that one of the things that he couldn't figure out was why there were ambulances that were present. And there were um, veterans from the Pacific Theater who were being discharged, and some of them had malaria. And they experienced attacks while they were in the process of being discharged. And like my father, they wanted very much to become civilians again. So as they'd be carried out to ambulances, they'd be screaming, I'm fine, I'm fine, let's continue the discharge process, I'm just fine. So they'd have to spend another couple of weeks in the Army in the hospital until their malaria had been stabilized, and then they could be discharged. But he was very glad to go. Um, as he was marching out of uh, Fort Sheridan, there were a number of young recruits who had been inducted, and they were going to be at that time sent to Japan for what they thought would be the invasion. And they saw my father marching by, and my father had seven overseas service stripes on, one for every six months. So those three and a half years were listed on his sleeve, and he said those, those young men were very wide-eyed, and they hooted and hollered and said, oh, you lucky dog, and things like that. And my father said he wanted to say something encouraging. So he said, don't worry, fellas, it goes by quick. We started the job, and now it's up to you to finish it. And when he reached the main gate before he went out, he took one look back, and he said to the two sentries on duty, you can take this man's army and shove it up someplace. And their comment was, uh, or rather they broke um, a military protocol, and they, they actually laughed out loud. So he turned around, and he said he walked out absolutely ecstatic to be now a citizen and no longer a soldier. Um, so that was his story. Yes? Um, my father, that's a, that's a very good question. It was, how does my father feel about having a book actually written about him? Is he proud or is he embarrassed? There's some, there's, my father always said that, um, he referred to it as the fact that he had spent four of his, four and a half years of his life really as a conscript against his will, um, in something that wasn't very pleasant. But it was still four and a half years of his life and he was happy that he had something to show for it. And he said that he was glad that he had done his duty. There's certainly pride. I think the pride is tempered now by age. If this had been published 20 years ago, there probably would have been more pride in it. But now his comment has been, if you're happy with it, then I'm happy. And he knew I wanted to tell this story. Um, a number of you will encounter, and this is very common from those who have served in combat, understandably people don't want to talk about it. So there's pushback. And when my father and I talked about his time in Iceland or basic training or his shenanigans in, in England or Ireland, he enjoyed that. 
or even after the war, what he had done in occupation in Germany and Austria, you know, fishing with hand grenades. You simply lob a German grenade into the lake and all these fish come up. It's very convenient, very easy way to fish. So there were a lot of things that were fun, but that 10 months in combat was we kind of unraveled that bit by bit. Um, his memory, even 20, I mean, at 89, it's still sharp. He could still converse about this without too much problem. Um, it wasn't a question of the overall memory, but it's what the process that the mind must do to protect a person from that because we kind of had to dig and chip and sometimes we'd get about 45 or 50 minutes into an interview and he'd say let's turn off the tape recorder that that's enough for today whereas when we talked about other things he could go two hours or two and a half before he'd say I'm a little dry let's let's call it quits for today so um, yeah it does become difficult and we slowly unraveled these things bit by bit and again he pointed out as I mentioned in the forward of the book or the introduction, rather, he pointed out that you know, I did this for you. He did it for me. He said, because I know you wanted to have the details. You wanted to write this book. You wanted to tell a GI story. So I'll do it for you. And that was really the reason that he did do it. Most of the stories that we heard when we were growing up were the, the, the hijinks and the shenanigans. Even when he talked about combat, it was in kind of a veiled way. So it was only later that we knew, you know, for instance, at Fort Trayant, um, and I won't describe that here, especially since we're being taped, but he talks about the process of what's involved in, in actually sneaking up on someone and, and utilizing a knife and, and, um, and uh, what would they call it, probably eliminating your target, um, to put it in a nice military euphemism. But he said those were certainly um, unpleasant memories. And uh, one of the things he actually said, a lot of people have their faith shaken by war. His increased, not only because he survived, but he said, if all of this goes on, I know there has to be a God because there's no doubt there's a devil. He said, I've seen it all firsthand, so there's got to be a God to counterbalance this. So his faith, he said, was actually strengthened by all of it. And, of course, I think that's probably true. You won't find atheists in foxholes. There's a lot of prayers that go on when the ground heaves and convulses. Yes? Said a comment. Your father was very lucky. Uh, last night, I knew I was coming here, so I went on the computer and Google the Fifth Division. I got some other things. Fifth Division, what I came up with, had 270 days in combat. Depends on how They had 166% turnover amongst the ranks. And there was 12,500 killed and wounded, and about 11,000 not badly killed. And in his own second regiment, which was one of the three regiments that composed that, uh, the figure that I had seen for turnover there was 250 percent. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, as a matter of fact, what's described at Metz, these folks were brought up um, to to fight. Uh, my father said that his favorite weapon was the M1 carbine because it was very light and very easy to use to use short rifle ammunition. Um, but because of the loss of manpower at Metz, uh, young men, 18 and 19 years old, who were being trained for non-combat positions, or even if they were combat positions, they were things such as serving in the Army Air Corps as a navigator or a radio man or something of that nature. And now they were being pulled out of those schools and told they were going to become riflemen. And um, my father said often these, these young men only lasted one or two days on the front lines. And in those days before they had the, the famed plastic body bags, they would use mattress covers. And um, Metz was, a, it was, a, it was the fall in Lorraine. It's a cold area. And normally they have about two and a half inches of rainfall. This particular fall they had seven inches. So they were knee-deep in mud a great deal of the time. And he said these mattress covers would be swung back and forth, and then the body would be thrown up into a truck. And he said the bodies were just piled up into the trucks. And these were all young men who just a few days before had said things like, I'll n I've never fired a rifle before. And they were told, don't worry, you'll learn. And they basically were cannon fodder. So um, you can see why the casualty rates were so astronomical. Um, there was a... a physician uh, who just passed away about six months ago by the name of Lawrence Nickel, who self-published a book on his experience as a member of the 5th Division, and he was wounded in March of 1945. Um, he had a wound that um, uh, required a medical discharge. But um, again, that, that became an excellent source to be, and he talks about the excessively high casualty rates. 
And again, I don't think this is the type of thing we often give a lot of thought to. We think of these things, especially from movies, as these sweeping advances and these incredible victories by patent. But the number of lives lost was just phenomenal. And there are very few people that can say, basically, I was there for a 10-month period of time. It was true when I say the entire time he wasn't present for the Normandy landings on June the 6th, but he was there within five weeks, and they had only moved a few miles inland. So he was in the Normandy campaign and all across the rest of Northwest Europe. And those casualty rates, it's an excellent figure. And you're right about those, depending upon who you look at, days and, and casualties, and if you include the additional 30 days that can infect the casualty rates, things of that nature. Um, it's interesting because the, um, to the, he said the replacements would come in so rapidly that you wondered if people actually had a chance in morning reports to truly have an accurate accounting as to who was there. He said they, they would see faces for the first time in the morning and by evening they'd be, they'd be deceased. They'd be killed in action. To put this in that's correct. Oh, yeah, you would outfits like the 1st Infantry Division who had been in North Africa, Sicily, then France, and the rest of, yes, absolutely. And you look at both the 101st and the 82nd Airborne Divisions, and uh, just phenomenal. Um, and, again, that's why I think that, that Brokoff probably said it best when he referred to these folks as the greatest generation, because I, I don't know... Um, short of a, a, a direct assault on the United States if you could muster that kind of courage today and, and determination. And to tell people that you're going to be in this until it's over with. There were no rotations. So you look at some of those people, again, the 1st Infantry Division, or people who served in the Pacific, like the 96th Infantry Division, and these people were in campaign after campaign after campaign. Uh, there was no, well, you've, you've served 10 or 12 months, we're going to rotate you out now. You just continued to serve. And um, like someone said, you're, you're, and this was not my father, but your tour ended when you were put in a box. That was about the way, or it was either victory or death. There really didn't seem any other way out of it. I had a cousin who was a regular army in Fort Benning in 1941, and at the end of the war in Europe, there was three left from his company. He and two others. That's what, 150 men? Yeah, about 150 in a company. And yeah. These were regulars. The points did not apply to them. They were in for duration plus six months, including the invasion. You can look, that's, that's an excellent point, you can look at, by the way, my father said that the 5th Division was called in and they were asked about people who wanted to go over to the Pacific, and he said he wasn't aware of anybody who did. I mean, I'm sure there were some, but he said it was amazing because everyone he knew said, I'm done. I'd, I'd like to get out of this very much. Um, uh, I'm, there was a point, though, that I was going to mention about the, um, I'm sorry, it's, oh, the, um, the 5th Division ended up swapping 4,000 men with the 103rd. They had come a little bit late, so the 103rd was going to be deactivated. So my father and 4,000 others from the 5th who had 85 or more points were switched to the 103rd in June of 45. And then those 103rd men, they went into the 5th, and they were sent back to the States to be en route to Japan. And while they were there, of course, it was announced that the war had come to a, a conclusion. So they were fortunate. Any other uh, questions or comments? Answers? You know, I would like just for one minute, Marianne, could I could I call you up? Um, I would because I know at least one person is interested in writing. Um, just a little bit on editing and condensing. I think that I can't think of anybody better. So, Marianne Grizzolano, if you would. Um, I read the first draft of Jim's book and. Not only personally, but even as, a, as an English teacher, I was very impressed. But because he did what every good writer is supposed to do, just put down your thoughts without editing yourself. And that, that would be my recommendation. If you're writing a book or you've got an idea to write a book about um, a family member, a parent who was in the service, write down what you want to say without editing yourself. It's much easier to go back later and take things out. Um, and to condense than it is if you leave it out in the first place thinking it won't be important. It might be more important than you realize. And you take a second party to look at it and they can tell you what, what should be in there, what's really compelling. And in Jim's case, most of the stories were very compelling, but the stories of Dad's 
hijinks, his favorite time in the service was probably when he was in England and Ireland. And so what happened is he spent a lot of time telling Jim stories about all the fun he had there in the bars and all these stories that we heard about. He loved to get in bar fights. That was one of his favorite hobbies. And um, so he told lots of these stories. But after, after reading maybe six or eight of them, he said, you know, you could probably condense these down to two or three because they're basically the same story. He just went in a different bar and got in a different fight with a different group of guys. So that's the kind of thing, but it's, it's important to have it all in there. So I would suggest if you're writing your book about your dad, don't edit it. Don't just put all of it down, everything you find out. Try to put it in some kind of chronological order, obviously, but then let somebody else step in and show you where it could be condensed. That's great. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And what you might want to do, since you've got so much, is separate, um, have a folder for yourself, like for different years, say, or different locations that he was at, so that you've got all the material that pertains to one aspect of his war service in one place. Because you're going to come up with all kinds of stories, and uh, and you might hear from you. You're talking to a lot of veterans, so you're going to talk to somebody who had a story about something that happened in a certain place, and another veteran who was with him somewhere else. So if you have, you could do it either way, either chronologically by date, or you could do it by location, where he was stationed, what what battle he was in, etc. And that way, you've got all the material. When you want to work on one section, it's easier that way. Right. Right, because if you worry about right, if you worry about the whole thing, you won't ever write it. You know, you got to kind of break it down. But like I said, don't stop yourself because if you've got a good story, you might it might be more compelling than you realize. So don't edit yourself too soon. Just I, I would say organizing when you've got it's sort of like writing. If those who are students, it's like writing a gigantic research paper. You know, you organize it by subtopics, and that way it, you don't find it so overwhelming. You can address one part at a time. Like, can you give me an example of where your dad was stationed or what battle a battle he was in? Okay. And that would be worth a folder right there, and, you know, like a, to separate the experiences he had there, all of the stuff that happened, all the people he talked to, all the, you know, all the stories, both um, the ones connected to war and combat and the ones connected to all the hijinks that, like you said, soldiers tend to get into. I was lucky to contact a woman, Mary Mike Stevenson, who was uh, in charge of a nonprofit organization to remember First World War and the Second World War of Dover and honored all the citizens that were killed during this bombing at the same time my dad was there. And she's helping me out with, with stories. Uh, and put a little blurb of my dad's battalion that were like two miles east of where her parents were mm-hmm. living at the time. So I mean did you say one little part? Yeah. Keep it there. And and that way you won't be overwhelmed and you'll actually do it, you know, because otherwise it can just look daunting, you know, to tackle all that. Anything else about editing? It's just a familiar face back there. <laughs> well, the nice thing, too, is that when you complete your manuscript, even though an editor will come back, uh, I had a situation where I was told, we got the combat on page 92, we'd like to get it to about page 72. So there were at least 20 pages, and it ended up closer to 40 that I, that I actually eliminated from the book. Um, but as Marianne said, you know, I have the I have the full manuscript. So for my family members, switch back. Okay. I have the full manuscript. So for my family members, this is great because now we have this kind of captured for our family posterity. But as she pointed out, for those of you who aren't part of someone's family, 
the stories do become repetitious. Um, but it's, you know, I, it, as was pointed out, I think it's a great idea to, to get all these things down and captured, and then someone else can kind of come back and say, well, this is what we probably would like to, uh, to cut out. Um, there does become a point, too, you, you want to make certain uh, on the other end of that that at some point you are going to curtail your activities because you, you start to find things out about the division and about the unit. You think, how much of this should I include? So eventually you get to a point where you say, I, I think I have enough information and I'll have to draw that to a particular conclusion. But, my, yeah, I described the political divisions in Ireland, and that took three pages. And that really had little, that was historical and didn't really have much to do with my father or the 5th Division. And by the time I was done editing, it was down to three paragraphs. So it was just the idea, the South was neutral, the North was part of the United Kingdom. You, know, you had the religious differences between the North and the South. And, you know, there was, there was some support for the Germans among the Irish Republican Army. But most of the Irish were, were sympathetic. They didn't really necessarily like to admit it, but their sympathies were with Britain as opposed to with, with Germany. Um, book is available in the back. Uh, I will be happy for uh, anybody who has purchased or is planning to purchase the book to autograph it for you. And um, again, I'm as Marianne. I'm I'm adjunct faculty here. Um, if any of you, I'll be happy to. If you have a pen, if anybody wants to contact me by email. Um, for any potential assistance or something like that because I'm always happy to forward on sources and I want to encourage other people to, uh, to write about their own experiences. But my email is uh, a very simple one, aside from the one here on campus, is james.builder, that's B-I-L-D-E-R, at comcast.net. And I'll be happy to send anything on to you that I can or answer any questions. So please feel free. Anything else? All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks, Marianne and Jim. And I encourage everyone to pick up a copy in the back and have it signed. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.